0: Hello, you're very welcome to the week that really was here on Grip Media with me, John McGurk, and my new co-host, Sarah Ryan. Hi, how are you, Sarah?
1: I'm good, thanks. How
0: are you? I'm well. It's easy saying that uh, Sarah is married to a Liverpool fan, folks, because it is the 23rd of February. It's five past eight. Man United have just kicked off against Barcelona. And I'm going to be watching it here while uh, keeping an eye on it, while having a conversation about the week that was. And before the show, (laughs) we were talking talking about uh, the... uh, the things that happened this week. And it was a busy week. Um, Roald Dahl had his books rewritten because apparently they're not particularly sensitive. The Social Democrats got a new leader. The Scottish National Party is getting a new... Well, Social Democrats and Scottish National Party are both getting new leaders. We had we had a very interesting revelation about how Catherine's opponent changed national policy, which we'll come to in the end. But firstly, I want to talk about the cost of living because the government this week announced... Um, it's the latest cost of living package. And I have to say that um, I felt really left out. I felt I felt like there was stuff in that package for everybody except people like me who are PAYE workers um, who aren't on social welfare and don't get anything from the government. We still didn't get anything from the government. How did you do?
1: Um, I got €300, euro, um, the children's allowance so I have three kids, so I got an extra hundred euro for each kid in June. And I think that's about it, really. And um, better than a slap of a wet fish, John, but
0: it's better than what I got. See? Yeah,
1: it's more than what you got. But at the same time, it's like when you compare it to what how much it's costing to live, you know, in, in terms of all of our bills, it's not even gonna it's not plugging any holes by any means.
0: I, um, I, yeah, I I have to say now, um, I didn't get much. Uh, but at the same time, I I you know, without getting too personal about it, um, I, I I consider our us, myself and my wife relatively fortunate here in that the much feared ESB bill didn't really hit us that hard this winter. I think it's because we have oil heating and that's where most of the cost for heating the house went. Um, but I've heard some horror stories in recent weeks. My a, a member of my family, who shall remain nameless, received a bill for, for almost €2,000 Euro for their home. Um, I have friends who've received similar bills, which is is just, for a family on average income, that's just an unsustainable level of expenditure. I mean, you're, people are dipping into their savings to pay for current expenditure. Um, has that been your experience as well, or have I just known some really unlucky people?
1: no no that two grand bill is pretty much spot on to what we got um and also our mortgage has gone up so we have a tracker so our mortgage has gone up by about 30 something percent and um, so our electricity and gas we used to do the you know the estimated bill so it would kind of be spaced out over the year. so it used mm-hmm. to be about you know 200 and something euro a month and now it's <laughs> i mean say nothing for the cost of food and all those other things going up, it's completely insane. Um, the cost of running a household, keeping it heated, you know, whatever. So what,
0: 300 what about, euro. What about the cost specific to kids? Because you've got three young kids, obviously I don't. Um, uh, 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 the cost of essentially keeping kids in clothes and food and all the rest of that, is that, is that going up as well? Or are they at least targeted supports there that help? I know yeah, bad, I mean,
1: but... I mean, so you get the children's allowance but like apart from that our kids one is in school one is in Montessori and our youngest is a baby so she's fine she's not the Montessori um is pretty expensive we were it's kind of a little known fact but you get this for two free preschool years as you've heard mm-hmm. of the Eki thing however um <laughs> it's so ridiculous but if your child is born is not is not born before the 31st of the year before they start, if you know what I mean. They don't really get two free preschool years. They have to, they get one, unless you want to send them to primary school when they're six. So our son, Connor, was born on the 11th of January. He missed the cutoff. So he's in his second free preschool year, but I had to pay for it last year because of his birthday. So last year, his Montessori was 800 a month um, because he didn't, get any Eki and they'll argue like, oh, you could send him um next year to you could you know you could take the second preschool year next year, but he'll be in primary school and I'm not going to keep him out of primary school and he's ready to go to primary school just to get a free two hours a day. So yeah here we are. Yeah. So um and it's a completely absurd situation that's been brought up tons of times in fairness by a couple of TDs um that I know and it's just a flat no. um you know it should be based on that you get to preschool years based on when your birthday is not on an arbitrary date and the end of the the year but anyway so um the Montessori has gone up slightly um but also like everything's gone up so like I seem to be spending a huge amount of money on any kind of extracurricular thing you know of any description if I want Mm -hmm. them to do swimming classes it's very expensive you know that kind of thing like it costs money to have kids fine but everything seems to have gone up and then when you're putting that on top of mortgage payments and, and gas and electric, that's at that level. It's just insane stuff.
0: Yeah, it strikes me, and I'm thinking here, I was trying to think, did I get anything out of this? And one of the things that the government did that's included in this package, uh, in the cost of the package, is that they're they're not putting the price of diesel and petrol for my car back up. And apparently this is a gift to me, that they're not going to tax me more for travelling around the place. Um, and I just think that says it all about the mindset because that tax cut that they introduced last year on petrol and diesel effectively cost them nothing. Like It effectively cost them nothing because the, the baseline price went up so high that even with a smaller percentage of tax, they were getting the exact same revenue. In fact, and I don't have the figures to hand, but I wouldn't be surprised if they're actually pay, taking in more excise, duty now than they were um, they were before they cut the tax, before the price of petrol fuels went up so it just strikes me that that i mean in some ways I mean, it's it's a long time now since we since we had a conversation in this country about the poverty trap so on and so forth but like for a, if you're at a certain level of income where you're five ten grand above what you would guess if you were on welfare you're probably worse off earning mm-hmm. that that whatever the net figure is 28 27 30 thousand euros you're probably worse off when you consider all the things that you lose out on compared to, um, and I, I, by the way, I want for emphasis, in case anyone wants to email in, I am not saying that people on welfare have an easy time, but they absolutely do not. What I'm saying is that the people who are in that gap above them, who are working 40 hours a week in many cases, sometimes two-income families working 40 hours a week, they are not necessarily better off. And it strikes me that those are the voters traditionally, you're of... Fianna Fáil stock. Those are those are the people who who made up traditionally the base of Fianna Fáil support. And then you have the people who are maybe 10, 15 grand above that again in the middle income bracket, who are traditional Fine Gael voters. And it strikes me that those are the people who got almost nothing. Whereas, and I'm I'm looking at this here from purely political standpoint, the people who traditionally vote for the left parties who are in opposition, you know, the should traditionally Sinn Féin voters, traditionally Labour voters, they got most of the government's largesse this time. And it it struck me as, you know, whatever about the morality of of dividing the resources that way, it strikes me this is a government without any sense of who amongst its own natural voters are in trouble. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think it's alienating people um, unnecessarily and
1: unwisely. Well, to your point, so... Nobody is suggesting that people who are who are on welfare aren't struggling or, or, or aren't in a disadvantaged position. Fine. The problem is, and I, I totally agree with what you're saying, what I would notice is that those people are regularly acknowledged in the discourse and represented by multiple parties and spoken about regularly at all at level. What mm-hmm. I don't hear a lot of talking about is my friends. Not I'm not going to speak about anything specific, but some of my friends that grew up that I grew up with. Talking about two, like couples, one, two, or three children, both of them working, right? And um, went, all of them moved home with their parents, saved up to get a deposit for two years while they, you know, tried to get onto the housing market, moved into houses further out of Dublin than they would have liked to be able to afford to get into the housing market, mm-hmm. have a couple of kids and are paying, no exaggeration, two grand a month for childcare after their income right then they pay their mortgage they are some of the in terms of disposable income some of the poorest people I know they have no disposable income after they pay all their bills and I rarely hear them acknowledged at all on 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 by politicians or discussed we hear a lot about people who are on welfare whatever fine that's appropriate but friends of mine that I grew up with and there's multiple of them who went to college and in their words, did everything right, did everything you're supposed to do and now have good jobs, like say they're on 80 grand each, good jobs, good salaries. And they are struggling, Mm -hmm. like struggling. They're the people who, you know, decide when they can, like if and when they can go out for a night out. Do you know what I mean? After all the bills are paid. And my issue with that is they're not acknowledged at all. Nobody discusses the struggle that they're under. And this budget does very little for them too.
0: This is where I'd have a, a sort of. A, you, you mentioned a figure there that's very interesting to me, which is people spending two grand a month on childcare. And as you were saying it, I was trying to think in my head what approximate salary level do you have to be earning to have basically two grand a month after taxes? Mm. And uh, it's quite high, like it's it's oh. over forty thousand euro um, yeah. to to be to be coming home with that that much. Which so is, I
1: think. A roughly you get four grand yeah roughly you get four grand so if you have two four grand salaries coming in every month and the mortgage is two or three and the child care is two well there's five then you've got three left if your if your electricity and gas bill is one there's six you've got two left mm-hmm. that's a grand each 250 euro each a week do you know what i mean like and that's before you've paid any other bill child uh insurance car insurance anything like that that's we're whittling that down now to like vapors. And I know these people and I know, and and two grand, the bill for two, for uh, for childcare might be more than two grand if you start factoring in, you know, a school pick up here for a third child or whatever, you know, like, and mm-hmm. you know, when I was growing up, my dad was in politics, my dad used to always say, and I always remember that, you know, Fianna Fáil voters and people voted for you and, the, and most people were really happy if they had a job where they could pay all their bills, they could go for a few drinks or something to eat on a Friday and they could bring their family on a holiday every year. Mm -hmm. And there is a lot of people who have good jobs, who earn good money, who can't do that at the moment. And that's where the anger comes from. And the anger also comes from the fact that they're never talked about. Like, yeah, you hear a bit of faffing about childcare from time to time, but nothing ever materializes. Nothing ever really happens. And, you know, if you're on a good salary and, Again, like I said, people who did everything right. They moved home with their parents. Some of them had their children while they lived at home with their, like their first baby, while they lived at home with their parents, just so they could afford to get onto the property market. And they pay big taxes and they, you know, they do everything by the book and they're getting nailed.
0: Mm -hmm. It strikes me, you know, um, that, and to to just make this a slightly cultural conversation, that, you know, if you are a, a family with, two incomes and two kids and you're uh, three kids or whatever it is and you're paying that much on childcare. there's also a huge cultural pressure for both parents to continue working even though financially it might make more sense and from a
1: yeah
0: not for me to talk about parenting but like almost i would imagine from a parenting perspective there might be desire for one parent just to quit working and 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 you know stay at home with the kids but of course then there's huge cultural pressure not to do that you're a failure or you're kind of square or traditional if you do that but like I I don't I don't understand how people work and I imagine these the stress that that must place on families is just something that we're not we're not really having a conversation about in this country at all um and that's that's an area where I think I think it's time for us to have a conversation because um my colleague Fatima actually made a made a, a point during the, the the week um where you know she's a lot braver sometimes than I am that she thinks that having kids in childcare from the age of four to the age of 10 or whatever it is, if you do it after school clubs and all the rest of it, is not ideal not something that she personally aspire to. Um, and that we should be saying to people, look, if, you can, if, it, if it makes more financial sense to stay at home with your kids, that's what you should do. But you can't do that now, of course, because there used to be a time in this country where one parent could transfer their tax credits to the other so that you could have a family income and 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 get a taxable benefit from one parent staying at home. But Charlie McCreevy, God bless him, did away with that. And I'm not I'm really not sure that was a good idea. And I'm really not sure it's something we shouldn't look at again. And not just for married families as used to be the case, but for any sort of two parent arrangement. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's that's something that I it's a conversation that's just for some reason it's beyond the pale in Irish politics. Um, and I think in terms of a cost of living measure and quality of life measure, it's something we should look at. And I'm not suggesting that the parent who stays at home, by the way, has to be the mother either. But it's um, it's a it's an issue, I think, where there's a there's a conversation that could be had.
1: Yeah, I mean, I stopped working. Um, now, I kind of it was a bit complicated because I went back and studied law part time after I started having kids. But ultimately, you know, I stayed at home with the kids and um, kids. And I was kind of shocked at how many of my female friends quietly said to me, oh, God, one in particular, I remember, said the dream. If I could, I would like Mm -hmm. I was shocked at how many of them said that if it wasn't for the financial pressure of Mm -hmm. the mortgage or whatever, that that's what they would like to do. And that's terrible. That doesn't mean that all women want to stay at home. That's not what I'm saying. But there are some who would and can't. And I think that. Really,
0: really sad. I remember, I think, I always think back to a conversation I had in 2016, Sarah. I was in the United States at the time I was working in the US um, and it was about the time Donald Trump was gaining in popularity and Donald Trump horrified me. He still kind of horrifies me, to be honest. He's not my cup Mm -hmm. of tea. And I was was looking at this range of Republican candidates, you know, talented people from Ted Cruz to Marco Rubio to whoever else was running. There was a good field of candidates and Trump was pumping them all. And I had the opportunity at the time to have, uh, to be, not to have, no, I wasn't a one-on-one dinner, but I was at a table having dinner with somebody who had been at one stage quite prominent in American Republican politics. And I was certain this guy would be anti-Trump. And I said to him, um, why are you, you, what do you think of the election? He says, oh, I'm for Trump. And my, my jaw hit the floor. And I said, if you don't mind me asking, why is that? And this guy was in his 70s or so. And he said, look, the, the way things are in America is when I was a kid in the, 30s, you know, before the war and even in the 50s and 60s, um, it was possible for the American family to have one income, two cars, holiday, quality of life, four kids, and do it all on one salary. Now most people can't even do it on two. Something's gone very, very wrong with the way we have changed the global economy. Um, and I think he has a point. I'm not sure yeah. that Donald Trump is the right solution to that. But I think the way we have changed how we order society—this idea that everyone works, everyone is a unit of economic activity—you um, know—I—I—I—I I, I, I think there's 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 a conversation to be had about whether we went on the wrong track somewhere around nineteen eighty-five or so. I think.
1: Yeah. Um, anyway, I don't think this cost of living budget has done anything to uh, to alleviate that uh, problem. No, it um, hasn't. Um, the only thing I will say, I mean, one of the things I thought was kind of, it, it kind of came upon us this budget. I like it seemed very sudden to me. And um, one of the things about the, the 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 last one, and I thought that they they did quite well, is that you know sometimes the 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 state of the nation is such that I feel like some budgets are as much about psychological. Um, comfort as they are about financial comfort for people mm-hmm. and i felt like the last budget or the budget in october the that people were so fearful about the energy crisis and whatever that it, it did it did address it did make people feel like the government somewhat had their arms around them and i think i think that credit where credit was due then they succeeded in that somewhat yeah well... but this not so much
0: I've written about that, actually. I have to say, in fairness to the government, I thought their electricity credit on bills was very good. My mm. bills ended up, as I said, our heating isn't electric, it's oil, so that's separate. But I'm fortunate our electricity bills were lower than some other people's. Um, but at that, I really noticed the impact of the two payments of 200 quid, or ever it was. I, I was going through my bill, and I was like, oh, that's really nice. And I remembered it. But uh, coming back to this, the politics of it, it always strikes me with governments that they, they... You know, if you give somebody 200 euro, uh, whether it be in a welfare payment or give you 300 euro in June and child allowance and all the rest of it, um, I don't think you're going to remember that necessarily at election day. Um, for me, if I was in government, um, I've had this conversation with people in the past. I, I don't know why they don't introduce kind of like an annual tax rebate scheme. And I'm speaking it in terms of pure politics here where they send people back at, instead of cutting taxes, for example, you send people back the difference between what the tax rate would be and what it is, whether that's 500, 600 quid, and send it to them in the first week of January when everyone's feeling the fear. Um, Mm. I I think people would remember that a little bit more, especially in an election year getting close to an election. I don't see this moving the political needle uh, even one little bit. Um, But anyway, I think we've We'll, we'll move the conversation a little bit. Um, are your kids going to be reading the new Roald Dals or the old Roald Dals?
1: Oh, God, uh, The old Roald Dals. I mean, what is wrong with people? Honestly, it's so depressing. Like, I'm a big Roald Dahl fan. Like, read all the books. Um, my kids like Roald Dahl, whether they like it or not, kind of thing. Um I have prints of Roald Dahl books on the walls of their rooms. Like I'm like, I'm a, I'm a big, I'm a super fan. And I mean, I just think that this is now where we're, we're reaching new levels of nonsense. We really are. I mean, it's become parody. It really, I mean, I, I just thought to myself, talk about spectacularly missing the point of childhood, what children need to be taught protecting children from what you know it's just the whole thing is absurd I find it, it, it I think
0: it's it similar. looked like
1: an article from The Onion except yeah. it was real
0: I think it's insulting to kids because yeah. I remember like I'm, I'm uh, I'll be 39 uh, next week and I remember reading Roald Dahl as a kid Um, and 20 years ago there were things in Roald Dahl where I remember being 10 or 11 sorry 25 years ago I remember being 10 or 11 going oh, you couldn't say that today um, or knowing instinctively you couldn't say certain things. Uh, Enid Blyton is another author. I, I grew up on Enid Blyton and Roald Dow, though so they were the two children's authors I read. And Enid Blyton, her books are full of stuff. Like, you know, I think there's one instance where somebody is described as a gollywog. Um, and I, as a kid, I I, I, I was aware yeah. of my social surroundings to know, um, oh, you can't you can't really call people that anymore. Um, but mm-hmm. I also knew I was reading books that were set in a time, you know, in Enid Blyton's case, where uh, all English public, all English girls went to public boarding school. You know, I knew I was reading material from a different time. Um, and therefore, even as a child, I was able to put it in that context. I mean, it just strikes me, these people, like, it's, it's so insulting to children to think that children lack the capacity to read things and make their own judgments about it, or that children are going to be, because they read Roald Dahl, they're going to start calling old women hags. I mean, I, I've never called an old woman a hag in my life. I, I don't think you have either. And we both read Roald Dahl. We both read The Witches. We both read The Twits. Um, we didn't internalize those bad words and say, oh, well, Roald Dahl said them, they're cool. You know, we we laughed because the humor is funny. And I, I, as I said in the piece during the week, like when he calls, um, in, in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, when he calls Augustus Gloop fat, or when he calls Violet Beauregard, whatever he calls her, those characters don't represent people. They represent vices. Augustus Gloop in, in, in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory represents gluttony and greed. That's what he's denigrating. Um, Violet Beauregard, or whatever her name is, represents you know, ambition and envy and, you know, all sorts of bad things, and it's those his his negative characteristics are always associated with negative personality traits. He's not just insulting people randomly, and I, I like it's such a misreading of his work. For my money, to even uh, apart from the arrogance of thinking you could rewrite it, uh, um, so I thought though it was fairly heartening that that for once you and me seem to be in like the majority of public opinion on this.
1: Yeah, but at the same time, like. It- that's because they've slightly overstepped. But this is, you know, an example of something that's happening on a, more grand, on a smaller scale all the time with things. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, OK, so maybe maybe there was an overreach on Roald Dahl, but it'll still be happening at a smaller level on loads of other stuff. Like recreationally taking offence is the new pandemic. That's my, that's my overarching feeling now. It's like I'm going to teach... Apart from a couple of things that I want, you know, that I'd like to think my kids will be by the time I'm finished parenting them. One is resilient. And two is a basic grasp of the concept that the world doesn't owe it to you not to offend you. You know, like you can read books and they can have rude things in them and you surely will have the brain to have like, to understand that, you know, in, this is in context. this is a very rude thing to call someone. this is this is being used as to demonstrate that the person who is saying this or doing this is a rude person. It's not to be emulated. It's to explain the character. I mean, mm-hmm. for God's sake, are we really proposing that we raise a generation of children who are never exposed to anything that is mildly offensive or rude or whatever? It's like, come on. Like surely if I sit down with my kids and I read them, Matilda, for example, and um, my son, we read Matilda uh, a few times and he was asking me the other day about, you know, why her parents are mean, (laughs) you know, like Mm -hmm. they don't care about reading and they don't send her to school. And He's going through this phase at the moment where he's telling me that he doesn't like school. And he's like, well, you know, her parents were really mean and they they didn't send her to school. And, you know, he was like, some people have mean parents. And this started a conversation between us about, you know, me trying to explain to him that good parents send their kids to school, blah, 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 blah. But he's able to, like, understand Mm -hmm. that, like, this context, he doesn't like he's not crying at night because of the concept of mean parents. Do you know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. it's so absurd. Like, and surely offensive or rude or or children being exposed to things is is a way to start a conversation with your children about things not ending it i mean like i read all kinds of things a couple of years ago was not the labor party who wanted to take to kill a mockingbird off uh the school syllabus well like all we hear about all the time is is about racism but to kill a mockingbird is the is the you know the basic text of racism of understanding racism when mm-hmm. you're 15 it's this it's the place in your life if you've especially if you've not been a reader up until then where you the, where the where you get exposed probably for the first time to a conversation about racism like mm-hmm. so let's take it away I mean I just think we're, we're back to we're back to book burning And banning books and taking things away—it's just like who's the witch and who's the mob here? Because, to be honest, like Roald Dahl, fine today, and maybe yeah, we're in the majority. But there's tons of things that are you know silently being kind of cancelled for what it's for for want of a better word, and and so that you know, as you say, we're totally you know underestimating children, so that our precious. Little children will never be exposed to anything that might be scary or, you know, real. Because And and we could have a separate conversation about this. But I think that some of the people we see in universities today would demonstrate what happens when people aren't exposed to any disagreement, conflict, opinion that differs from theirs. On, and that,
0: good. on that very note, uh, on my computer screen at the moment before me, as you are saying that, I have an article in The Guardian today. By an Irish lady by the name of Neve Ó I hope I pronounced it correctly because the headline is: "There is a surefire way for the English to correctly pronounce Irish names. Just ask us." And uh, it goes on to basically say that English people calling her Nyav or whatever they call her when they don't know how to pronounce it correctly <laughs> amounts to, uh, to 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 uh, you know basically reinstituting colonial oppression. That's how upsetting and triggering it is. And there's there's like, you know, what is wrong with people? You know, I mean, really? you know, you know, For years, I didn't know that the the English name Featheringstone Hall is pronounced Fanshawe. Um, you know, there are Welsh place names I can't pronounce. So this idea that somehow you are being attacked if somebody from a culture where your name isn't common isn't certain how to pronounce it, I mean, it's just so like
1: what? No, but it's. Know? Do you know what it is? It, I hate this expression, but it's check your privilege because if that's your main concern. If that's so so big of an issue in your life, you are immensely privileged and you've got no worries. Yeah, and by the because way, because there are people with real problems.
0: Exactly, exactly. But the the, the arrogance of these people. I'm sorry, uh, this is random. We didn't even discuss it before the show. It just popped up. But like, who 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 pointed this woman, the spokesperson for all Irish people? Because I have been called by both Irish and English people, McGuire, McGurk, McQuirk. You know, my my name gets, and I, I don't care. I mean. It's not. A, it's not a particularly common name outside of the particular part of Ireland where I come from. If you don't know about my cousins who run a golf shop, you, you probably don't know how to pronounce it. Um, uh, so it's uh, it's 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 just like these people. Then they think they speak for all the rest of us. You know, apparently we're all being recolonized. If somebody does an English person specifically can't pronounce their names. I mean, I just can't get over. But it's it.
1: also. But it's also like. Do you, can, can, Comparing, like acting as if you're being put upon, colonization—it's kind of a—it's bordering on offensive. You know, like it's—you're—you're you're taking your minute irritation in your day to day life and making it into this huge issue, as if you're somehow—and it's like we were talking about last week when you were saying about the—we were talking about victimhood, and it's like you've got no victimhood, so you have to find it. So you find it in this nonsense, but really, it's not real. You're just creating a victimhood because you feel lonely without it. On that, did you happen to
0: see the South Park episode this week about um, the juvenile justice system? It just strikes me there's that section where they, they go to a brand management agency. Everyone go, in this episode goes to a brand management agency. The name of which I can't repeat on a family show, but um, the basic gist of it is that they, they say everyone needs to build their personal brand and the running gag is that the personal brand always ends with victim. So I think in the case of <laughs> Meghan Markle, it's uh, award-winning actress, celebrity, um, fashion icon, victim. Um, and 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 it's this idea that victimhood is the most valuable currency, which again, I think, comes back to the idea of people being victimized for having their names pronounced wrong. Anyway, on that, um, you wanted to talk about podcasts you've been listening to and I haven't listened to yet, which I think our listeners might be interested in, in a conversation involving J.K. Rowan.
1: Yeah, it's called The Witch Trials of J.K. Rowling, and it's so good. There's only two episodes up so far, but um, it's absolutely fantastic. It's such a rich analysis of J.K. Rowling and um, how the Harry Potter book started, but then also how they were met with um, opposition in some Christian circles in America because they thought that they promoted witchcraft and, Mm. and, um, you know, I'm sure that they would love Harry Potter to be their biggest problem in today's society. But um, at the time, it was a really big deal. And then how it evolved um, and, and how, you know, it, it really does a deep dive on like social culture in America, especially in the 90s. And, you know, how J.K. Rowling, it's coming to, you know, how she's become a so-called transphobe. And it's really very, very good. It's really worth a listen. It's um, it's produced, and the the narrator is that um, Phelps. Um, is it Phelps?
0: Megan Phelps, um, I think.
1: Megan Phelps. Yes. Yeah. So she left the Church of Latter Day Saints, isn't it? Um, no,
0: no, no, no. You got that no. one wrong. Those are the Mormons we're uh. talking about. No, she left the Westboro Baptist Church. Westboro uh,
1: Baptist Church. Excuse who are, who are, me, that are, was You are, we are totally different.
0: Much nice, much less, much less nice people than the Mormons. The Mormons. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, have Sorry said, to they, all
1: our, Mormon, our our vast Mormon <laughs> list, bishop. I, I, I. That was a complete mistake.
0: Well, no, it's fine. Uh, but uh, just to say, Mormons are actually. I, I've always found them to be the nice people that you could. I ever know. Walk to but I anyway, know. so but yeah, it is fascinating because because Megan phelps was through. Like she had an amazing transformation in her life where, I think, at the age of 16, 17 even she was protesting funerals with signs saying "God hates bags." And yeah. Now she's um, she's completely renounced all that and and become. She's not. I wouldn't say she's a liberal, but she's. I, I watched a couple of her TED talks and they're they're very thought provoking. So I, I I'm, I'm I'm interested to listen to this show. I have to say.
1: Well, it sounds like a kind of a strange thing to say, but you know what I like about her is, and I I I, I don't even know you know how liberal or not she is now, but she's clearly a person and. <laughs> This is unfortunately rare. She's a clearly, clearly a person who has done a lot of thinking. Mm-hmm. She's come from one culture where, where you know, it was absolute, and this was the way the world works, and you're not allowed to think any other way. To leaving that, which obviously nobody could deny, took a tremendous amount of courage, and um, to leave behind everything you ever were taught or believed, and your family, and choose the, you know, bravely choose. A different life for yourself and so I'm I know but you can tell that that would you know takes a lot of thinking who do I want to be now now I am free of that who do I, what way do I want to think what do I want to look at and you can see in the way she does this podcast that yes she's probably leaning towards being pro JK Rowling that remains to be seen she hasn't really gotten to it but she talks to her a lot but she's she's done some real thinking about this subject and mm-hmm. unfortunately I think that's kind of rare these days. There's, there's a lot of people who don't do a lot of thinking. And that sounds like such a strange thing to say, but they just have their opinions. They've they give them out in 140 character sound bites on Twitter, and they don't read anything longer than a journal article, and they don't really think, and they certainly don't expose themselves to anything different from what they believe to be. In inverted commas.
0: Not not even what they believe, because I was reading, uh, actually, on this very subject, there was an interview today in, I think, The Telegraph, but I'm not sure, with Ivana Lynch. Now, Ivana Lynch, for those who don't know, uh, is an Irish actress. She's from Dundalk, and she actually came to fame in the J.K. Rowling movies, Harry Potter movies, because she played one of the the sort of secondary characters, something called Luna Lovegood, and she was very good in that role at a very young age. (laughs) But a couple of years ago, when J.K. Rowling first um, sent her first ever tweet saying, you know, that there used to be a word for women and now there isn't, um, Ivana Lynch was one of the first people to sort of distance her from self from that and sent out saying, oh, I love all my trans folks and transphobia is totally wrong. And, you know, I would never go down this road, which was seen as a bit of a betrayal because J.K. Rowling had been so personally supportive of her, including when Ivana Lynch was about 11, 12 years old and suffering from Alzheimer's sorry, not Alzheimer's, I've I've done it now, Sarah, (laughs) Um, anorexia. J.K. Rowling had sent her personal letters and backed her acting career and helped her get the part and all the rest of it. And as soon as J.K. Rowling spoke out, Ivana Lynch uh, made these comments, which were seen as being sort of disloyal to a friend. But I thought it was very interesting in this interview with The Telegraph, she basically says, "I, I, I said that it was reflexive. I didn't really know much about the issue. I just saw that people were outraged. And I instinctively had sympathy with with trans people, but I didn't really think that much about it. And I think there's so much of that out there at the moment. Like, in not, I'm not putting words in her mouth, but my interpretation of what she said was, I just went with the flow. Um, and I think so many people are just going with the flow. Um, J.K. Rowling isn't, and therefore she is a hate figure, not only because she's not going with the flow, but because she's so big, so rich, so famous, so well known that she basically can't be deleted from the world like some people are when they when and
1: they. that and that gives her an ability to talk about things and you know almost if you if if, if uh, i would argue that if you feel a certain way about something you're almost kind of obliged to say something like you know because you're uncancelable like one of the things i would say and this is just as an aside like if, if, um, in the Me Too Harvey Weinstein thing, if everybody in Hollywood knew that this was going on, then Oprah knew what was going on. And Oprah is the most unconscionable person probably in the world, so why mm-hmm. didn't she say anything? She Better... didn't, she chose not to. So, yeah. you know, like, I, I think, like, so at, on certain issues, like, if JK Rowling felt this way about an issue, she's kind of it's her prerogative to say it, fine, but you know, she's unconscionable. so go for it.
0: Yeah, she actually has a responsibility. You mentioned Oprah. Meryl Streep is another classic example, by the way. Um, Meryl Streep, one of the most powerful decorated actresses in Hollywood, close associate of Weinstein for years. Uh, And and for the avoidance of doubt in case Meryl Streep's lawyers happen to be listening, I'm not suggesting any wrongdoing on her part or anything like that. But I find it very hard to believe that she had not at least heard rumours, at the very least. And I think she had a duty... To do more than she ultimately did, um, but yeah. no, she 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 chose her course of action. Um, and and there's, and there's men, people...
1: there's men the same. You know, there's there's big Hollywood actors who are the same. But you know, anyway, that's a kind of a whole other that's the whole other show, as they say. But on the subject of the thinking, I just feel there's there's not a lot of people who think beyond the kind of five second soundbite. And, you know, like I saw this thing on Twitter the other day and there was a video doing the round and it was just, and it was someone going around interviewing and asking people in the street, what's the point of straight white men? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was great. Everybody was saying there is no point. And, you know, we're all so wonderful. Great. And I just became kind of like irrationally enraged all of a sudden because, this is such a random thing, but years ago, I worked for Scottish and Southern Energy as a, an external consultant who came in and did um, operations analysis and budget stuff for wind farms and some of their electricity network. And one of the uh, teams that I used to work with was this team of um, engine uh, electric, electrical engineer guys who were the emergency response team. And whenever there was a storm or weather event, and they had this cool weather room and they would go into it or whatever. And there'd be outages. Right. And these guys would go out at three in the morning four in the morning in the wind and the hell and the snow and minus 15 degrees or whatever it was at the time. We're talking about Scottish Highlands or whatever. And they did work up on cranes, putting, fixing electrical wiring or whatever. That never gets clapped about, never gets noticed. No one ever sits around going, aren't they all so wonderful? But these were all happened to be straight white guys. There's also a lot of straight white men who are going out and fishing in boats, At you know, getting up early and fishing for the salmon that some of these guys are having on their avocado toast. And I just thought, do you know what? Like, you guys are so ungrateful <laughs> and <laughs> You know, like, you're just not thinking about what you're saying. Like, I'm not suggesting that the whole world should revolve around but uh, straight white men. But I don't think there's any group of humans that should just be written off all the time like that. And a lot of me- like men, straight white men in Ireland, are doing a lot of jobs laying tar on the road and things that a lot of these student and college entitled brats wouldn't dream of doing themselves. And so maybe your clever little video asking what's the point of white men is really absurd and check your privilege to use the the cool kids phrase again. But, like, talk about not doing any thinking. By the way, a lot of these kids' dads are these men they're talking about. Like, use your brains.
0: Yeah, well, it strikes me. It it strikes me. Like, I have two things to say to you. First is when you were talking about nobody claps for them, I'm just always reminded of my favorite moment of the pandemic. Uh, which is when, do you remember we were doing all the clapping for, well, I think it was more UK thing where everyone had to go out at seven in the evening and clap for their nurses. And uh, the now king and his wife, um, the then prince and princess of Wales, uh, emerged from Clarence House, I think it was, to clap. But there was no one else there. It's just these two people clapping, and all of a sudden you could hear Charles saying under his voice, "Isn't this the most ridiculous thing?" And it's I've I've looked. He can do no wrong in my mind ever since he did that. But the second point I'd say in relation to the video you're making is that if you did a video in the 1960s in Dublin or London or New York or anywhere else, where you're around asking men, what are women good for? The answer is I think there is
1: one. I <laughs> think there is one. And it does the rounds. And they use it as an example of the patriarchy. Yes. like, yeah. And how terrible <laughs> men are. And to show... There is definitely a video that does the rounds. I've seen it. Of like a group of Dublin kind of rugby... I think they're in rugby gear, football gear, or something. A group of men. And it's like, what's the point of women? Or what are... Something like that. And they're all like, oh, well, you know, they're... All, and it's like used as this kind of like horrific nightmare of whatever. Yeah. Yeah. and. Like, why can't both of them be wrong? Like, like you know, I like, put it this way. I hope sooner rather than later, we are laughing at these nonsense videos about men in the same way as we laugh about those videos about women. Because uh, two wrongs don't make a right, and they're both as absurd as each other.
0: They are. Anyway, talking about fighting the patriarchy, this is a... I did a terrible link in last week's uh, podcast. This is better. <laughs> Talking about fighting the patriarchy, uh, two of the most long-standing fighters on, on that front, uh, Roisin Shorthall and Catherine Mar- uh, Murphy, announced this week their resignation as co-leaders of the Social Democrats. The wide expectation is that they will be succeeded by uh, another uh, younger version of the patriarchy fighting genre, um, Holly uh, McKeever-Kerns TD. Um, Sarah, as, a, as an avid viewer of politics, what's your reaction?
1: Is her her middle name McKeever?
0: When she ran for election, um, it was Holly McKeever Kearns. And then it became Holly Kearns. So I don't know why that was.
1: Well, so my mum's maiden name is McKeever. So now I'm (laughs) really really worried we're related. No, I'm joking. Um, Here's what I think. I don't really understand why they've done this. I think that they should have learned a lesson from Labour who got rid of Alan Farrell for a, you know, a younger, more hip leader and it has done nothing for their uh, rating. Mm. Um, I think Alan Farrell was personally better. Um, I always thought he was you know, quite a good leader. He was less Labour than Labour generally and he was also an exceptionally good parliamentarian in the sense that he did find issues and he really, once he found an issue, he got into it and he didn't let it go and I think he... From my perspective, he seemed to earn his t- TD salary, even though I disagree with literally everything he thinks. Myself. Well, the other thing about,
0: about Alan Kelly um, is that uh, Alan Farrell, you said, is the TD. Oh, the sorry.
1: <laughs> sorry. Sorry,
0: sorry. what no, is
1: wrong with us tonight? I, I Alan know, Farrell but... is a Fianna TD in my constituency. Alan K-
0: Ke- Ke- Kelly is the former leader of the is the former Prime.
1: leader but, of the la- Labour Party.
0: But he, he, he also had something unique, which was he came from a rural constituency. Which is yeah. probably why they got rid of him in the end, I suspect, because he wasn't in yeah. touch with their core vote and sort of South Dublin and urban, you know, upper class urban limerick and so on and so forth. But, I mean, mm-hmm. he, he brought them, he, and he brought them a sort of seriousness. And I yeah. think, um, and not to agree with you too much, because I, I do see the logic of Holly Kearns, which I'll on to in a second, but I think that's what the Social Democrats are losing. They're losing seriousness. I don't agree with either Catherine Murphy or Roisin shorthol on much of anything, but I respect both of them very deeply. They're two very serious politicians with accomplishments to their name. I think in the case of Roisin shorthol um, her work on mental health in particular, when she was when she was a junior minister for health was significant. I think she when she makes arguments, they are serious arguments, usually backed by facts, figures, facts, you know, spending yeah. proposals and what have you. Um Catherine uh, Murphy, whether you agree with her or disagree with her, was, I think, incredibly brave in the matter of the serve scandal. Uh, she took on um somewhat one of the most powerful business people in the country and did so fearlessly. She exposed matters of, of serious and legitimate public interest. I think, although I would disagree with them fundamentally on maybe 80% of what they believe in both cases, these are two very serious, credible politicians who enhance our legislature. It's better for the country that they are there. They're serious people. Um, I don't want to preemptively judge Holly Kearns. Uh, she may well turn out to be such a person, but this is somebody who, a couple of years ago, I think, made jokes about having an abortion to annoy the Pope, and um, uh, that was before she became a TD. But there was there were several. definitely some very off-color remarks made there that strike me as a kind of, you know, the kind of thing that goes down very well in debating societies on campus. But I don't know how much it relates to the ordinary lives of people. I don't know. um, She's been recently, and again, very bravely talking about um, an incident in her own life where she was a victim of a stalker and so on. But outside those narrow range of sort of what you might call um, Me Too issues and you know secularism and getting the church out of schools and that sort of stuff i don't know what kind of serious economic analysis holly kearns has to offer i don't know what what she has to offer that um you know 100 other people in the doll don't or 200 people outside the doll don't um and the only thing i can see is that when you compare her to amon ryan and ivana batik who are two likely opponents for that kind of soft left vote at the next election well, she's younger and more sort of like patriarchy fighting and the media might love her and, you know, she might appeal to the kind of student vote. That's about the only argument I can see.
1: Maybe, maybe. But, you know, she's also not long at ED and being the leader is is different. Um, I, it remains to be seen. But, I mean, I think that the sockdams are on pretty low polling numbers Labour didn't get any bounce at all from changing the leadership. And, you know, is it the leader or have you maxed out what vote you're going to get from a pool of mostly similar minded parties? And, you know, that's what the mistake I think Labour made was that Alan Kelly was slightly different, rural and probably broadened their appeal somewhat.
0: Mm -hmm. Holly
1: Kearns, you know, I know she's not from Dublin, but she's she's very dublin trendy as you say like very much loved by the media will be on lots of things but it really remains to be seen you know if you're talking about being the leader of a party and being in leadership debates and stuff like that we'll see but um I don't know I mean I think that the Roshi and Shortall, in particular, is a is a is a seasoned politician like yourself. Don't agree with much, but you couldn't. But you know, there's another person doing thinking, you know, doing the work, doing their Oberwalia, coming into Leinster House with their facts and their figures straight, having their arguments coming from a point of of their own personal political ideology. Fine, but at least they have one. Um, I'm not saying Holly Kearns doesn't, but you know, there's there's there's. Like I would, I would be replacing the leadership of the Sock Dems in their fragile state, at at huge, huge uh, caution. That that'd be my opinion.
0: Yeah, just to clarify, by the way, something I said a minute ago. Um, her tweets, um, before she became a TD, she said, for every minute of airtime taking up on taking up on the papal conclave, so this is when the church was electing a new pope, I'm gonna get an abortion. Hashtag Pope. And three days later, Miss Kearns wrote. New pedophile ring leader, i.e., the Pope, describes gay adoption as child abuse. Um, so, I mean, there she is calling the Pope a uh, pedophile and saying that she'd get an abortion for every minute of the papal conclave was on TV. I mean, there's an audience for that. Let's not pretend there isn't an audience for that. There's probably a decent sized audience for that. But I don't necessarily think it's an audience that the Social Democrats don't already have and people aren't competing for widely. Um, and I think you're probably right that Shorthall and, and, and Murphy offered something unique, as did, for the final link of the show, Catherine poem. She offered something unique to Leo Varadkar, a poem <laughs> which changed the course of Irish history. Um, so, the story, this is our last story for the week, um, but it's a good one, um, is that the, the Taoiseach, Leo Varadkar, said today that the inquiry into the mother and baby's home, mother and baby home scandal in Chewham came about, um, as did all government policy uh, in that area, because at a cabinet meeting, um, Catherine Zapone read all of her colleagues a poem. Um, You've been, uh, as you alluded to a few minutes ago, Sarah, a fairly senior executive um, in a serious company. I've had that privilege also. Um, Where you worked was a customary to read poems at
1: meetings. (laughs) Do you think we'll ever get to hear this poem? Uh, I'm terrified. First of all... Yeah, we're, we're, it'll be, no, it'll be published in a book with proceeds going to something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Some NGO that already gets 50 million a year. Well, I was kind of,
0: I was kind of hoping that, you know, it'll be released under the 30-year rule, by which time <laughs> I will be 69 years of age and it, hopefully it'll be so bad that I'll die of mortification and avoid, <laughs> um you know, a long, slow <sighs> glide into decline. Anyway.
1: Here's the thing. I thought personally, like, and I I don't want to be mean, right, but. Personally speaking, I thought Catherine Zapone was already cancelled, and I was pretty happy about that because I felt fa- apart from disagreeing with everything to do with Catherine Zapone, I and I tweeted about this at the time, and you know it was one of the uh, people who um, had a miscarriage lost a baby, was in Hollis Street during the time of lockdown without being able to have any relative or anybody with me while Catherine Zapone was having a, a charity or an event for her own personal uh, career um, over across the green in the Marion Hotel. So I really have no time for Catherine Zappone. I think that her, um, you know, approach to getting that job and that then she had to pull out from getting the job, the, what was it, the special envoy on... Something, something. Um, It was basically uh, it uh, was
0: basically a dinner party pass for New York.
1: She wanted to be she wanted to
0: live in New York full time, represent the Irish government in some UN committee, and be invited essentially to all the hobnobs of the 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 grand and the great in New York, where she could be Catherine's bone, former Irish minister envoy, and receive a a little stipend. I'm sure. I'm sure. By the way, in the context of her career, it, it would have seemed to her like a meaningless amount of money. Um, and I don't think maybe he will get that. Um, but it was just the arrogance and the entitlement to
1: think exactly. that
0: she was entitled to this. And Simon Coveney's apparent um, adjudication that, yes, indeed, she was. He must have remembered the poem fondly.
1: Yeah. Uh, so, and like, so I just think. I don't really understand what Leo's motivation would be to bring up this today when Catherine Zapone is gone. She's not in politics in Ireland anymore. And um, it's it's kind of disturbing to me that does he think that that's going to impress people? Like this is a serious matter. Like it's a cabinet meeting. And as you said, in business or whatever, like imagine I'm a minister and you're a minister and I come back from Ukraine and I say, I've just come back from Ukraine. I'd like to report to everyone about what's going on to the, in the Ukraine. But instead of uh, reading this report with uh, actual facts and information, I think I'd like to demonstrate what happened to me in the Ukraine through interpretive dance. If that's okay, could you just move some chairs to the side there while I show you all what I experienced? But like, with my eloquent dancing skill, like, what is the difference? It's also making it about you when it's not about you. Like, just, just write a report. Like, this is a, you're a professional person. Write a report, give, bring your report to Cabinet. A poem, a poem. It's like something Waterford Whispers would write. Honestly, uh, it's like an article. You would be scrolling through Twitter, John, and you would see Waterford Whispers would tweet, Catherine's a poem informs Cabinet about update on X, Y, Z via poem. Yep. Via poetry. And we'd Uh, all laugh.
0: Uh, well, I'm thinking though, if if you and me are laughing and thinking this is ridiculous, just imagine how this news is being received in Aras and Uteron, where yeah. we have Ireland's most prominent poet, a man who devoted his entire life to the service of his country, um, and and advocating for socialism through the medium of poetry and 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 politics, and not once, to my knowledge, did he have the genius idea of reading a poem at a cabinet meeting while minister for culture to get more money. I mean, he must he must be very hard done by today. I'd say there are chairs flying up there. Um, but what and, do you
1: think? What do you think, Leo? Like, uh, do you not think it's so, such a bizarre thing to bring up now? Like, is he? Does he think that? Does is he has he left the reservation so much so that he thinks that people who read that are going to go? Oh, isn't that lovely? I think he like has, Is he trying to, like, you know, loosen up the ground for her to come back and get special envoy job again? I mean, what's the motivation? I don't understand it.
0: I don't know. I'm mean, The only explanation I have is that he has great difficulty differentiating the loud minority from normal people. Because there is a loud minority out there who, if you criticise Catherine's poem over a poem on this topic, will say that it shows heart and value and the value of having women at Cabinet, um, because they, they can communicate emotionally in ways that men can't. I mean, I, I, if I was a woman, that would insult me. Yeah, but, do, it insults
1: the, me. It insults me because, yeah.
0: You know there are people who would say that, though. Of course. Um, and, and there and, are also uh,
1: people who will say that if you criticise, and, you know, it's the common thing nowadays where if you if you criticise Catherine Zapone's poem, well, then you must automatically be criticising or be being heartless about the subject matter, which is nothing of the sort, but, you know, like never uh, uh, let the truth get in the way of a good offense.
0: Oh, contraire! I mean, the 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 situation in chuam however it came about, where, where there, you know, where there appears to have been significant deaths of babies over a long period of time. Yeah. Because there is more seriousness and more serious discussion than Catherine's a poem reading from her. Did own you say Catherine's a
1: poem. a poem or is Catherine's a poem?
0: Catherine's a poem is the headline piece I have uh, written on this subject for tomorrow. I have to say, but 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 I actually was trying to say the poem. But you know what? We we leave it there because we're we're, we're touching an hour. Um, it's been a great conversation, Sarah. Thanks for being here as ever. Uh, thank you at home for listening. If you have comments, or if you have thoughts, or things that we got wrong, things that we should talk about in the future, always reach out uh, to myself either by email or on Twitter, where you can probably find me. You can also hopefully find Sarah there. Um, If you want to help us, uh, the most important thing you can do is uh, recommend this podcast to your friends and to your family. Um, Hopefully our listenership is growing, but we want to continue to grow it. Um, But really, there's not much more to say this week. So until this time next week, that, my friends, was the week that really was.